Hello guys and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond. I am your host Mark Kaler. And before I get started today, I just want to give a shout out to John Ness and Aaron Cornett on the fishing vessel Pacific Prince and the entire crew with them and the entire crew of the FV fishing vessel Seymour. So today's guest is Captain John Hallium. How you doing today, John? Doing good. So, uh, another Ballard born and bred, or not really bred maybe, but born in, in Ballard. Uh, well, let's start there. Probably a hybrid would be the right word. So, uh, born in Ballard, emigrated to Norway when my family, or with my family when I was five, and uh, grew up, did my school, and most of my thing over there came back to the U.S. when I was 21. Mm -hmm. And uh, came back due to I had choices. I could stay and do military service in Norway or I could come back here and I chose the latter. Plus my dad had worked in Alaska in the 60s and early 70s so he had connections over here and his reputation helped me get a job in, in Alaska in those days. He had sailed as engineer back in the days with some of the some of the older Norwegian kind of what should I say the captains of industry. Some of the guys that became the big factory trawler owners and you know that became something here in Alaska in the 70s, 80s, and so and so. Now you went back when you were five to 21. So during that time over in Norway, your dad owned a shipyard over there. He he kept fishing in Alaska for four more years after we moved to Norway and he commuted back and forth and in the meantime he built up a shipyard smaller shipyard where we dealt with pleasure boats fishing boats and various other boats in which part of Norway is this uh, this is uh, close to Bergen on the west coast of Norway mm -hmm. do you have a uh, have any good childhood memories of, uh, of being raised around that shipyard well it was a lot of interesting stories to listen to some of the old-timer fishermen that had fished in the 50s and 60s in Norway, especially during the big uh, uh, herring bonanza they had in the 50s. And, uh, you know, it was always fun to sit and listen to those old people that had stories to tell. And they were good storytellers, too. And, you know, and they came to my dad a little bit because he had in industry experience with fishing from Alaska and other places. Mm -hmm. So it helped out. And, uh, so it got me interested in fishing and boats, which I was around, you know, from I was little, you know, so. And, uh, you know, during my schooling, when I was done with regular school, I went to engineering school to become an engineer on boats. And I worked uh, in my dad's shipyard three years before I decided to come over here. So that's pretty much that. And Turning then, wrenches, learning every part of the boat. Yeah, welding, wrenches, machining, engine work, everything. Mm -hmm. so it was a good experience to have, you know, especially to be on boats because you learn to be independent. You could do a lot of things. You didn't specialize in just one thing. And I would imagine that that at the time when you were turning 21 and decided to come over here, that that history really helped too, not just to. Oh yeah, no, because I had schooling and came over here with a. All I needed was sea time to get my license. And, uh, you know, due to me having that experience and my dad's reputation, it was not hard for me to get a job. But the first job I got <laughs> was actually on a long liner I went up to, and uh, that was a different experience, I must say. Because Be before you start that, yeah. can I ask you, you came back over at 21, did you come alone? Did you have... I came alone, but I had uh, 
my dad's sister lived over here, so I had a place to come to. So okay. I stayed with them probably for the first close to a year. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, first job. Didn't mean to back you up there, no, but no, I wanted no, to kind of know if you came. So first <laughs> first time went up, there was a summertime fishing up on the long liner. It was for uh, Jubilee Fisheries, and the boat was called Zenit. It was a golf shrimper style of boat. And uh, first time I came up, I had to help them offload the boat. It was all manual labor. They made blocks, and you had to carry them out by hand on a pallet and stack them inside the Frozen container. blocks? or Frozen blocks. And the living quarters on that boat was also... And we, we were nine people on board. And, you know, water on longliners is essential for doing because you need to use fresh water in the block. And you need to use it for other things. So... Water was not for showers on those boats. <laughs> no? <laughs> how, no. How long were you out at a time? Uh, we were out. I did two trips, I think, on that boat. You we were out for three and a half weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was your first fishing experience? In Alaska. In Alaska. Yep. And were you engineering or deckhand? I was or? just deckhand the first time. Because okay. he had an engineer. But that was the first time up there. Now, you said it was a, like a Gulf shrimp style boat. Can you explain a little bit? Because you... You, of all people we've had on here, yeah, yeah. really had the experience of knowing what the different classes of boats are, uh, besides probably Doug Dixon. But uh, what what's the difference between a, a Gulf shrimp boat and one built right here in, in... Well, first of all, the standard between a Gulf-built boat and a Northwest-built boat is quite a difference. They're not built necessarily for the weather we have in Alaska, the Gulf. And they have an open bow on them. They, this one did. And, uh, but it was summertime when I was up there, so weather wasn't really an issue. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I call them inferior compared to a northwest weather. Just not built as yeah. tough. No, no, no. Uh huh. So you came back after that trip, and then came back, uh, traveled around a little bit in the U.S., had some good time, and <laughs> and then later on that year, then I got a job uh, with Alf Servik on the Rainier, which is also one of the founders of uh, the Glacier Fish Company. So, which my dad worked on his, he worked on that boat incidentally when it was brand new in 1972, was 71 or 72. He had been an engineer on that boat when it was brand new. So, I still could find a few tape marks down there with his handwriting on it when I got on board. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Yeah, so, and then I, my captain at that time was uh, Harold Manis, which was a Norwegian skipper from Karmay that uh, had been around for many years. And he had also owned boats, and uh, well, I did most of my fishing with him since t- until he until he quit permanently. So he was an interesting guy. And by the way, Harold, he has passed away now. I mean, probably six, seven years ago. But uh, he was uh, he was one of those. Uh, he did not know much about the engine room, <laughs> and. And I did, so that that worked, and that was probably not a bad situation. And how long were you on that boat then? I was on the Rainier for a year and a half, and one time Alf Servik came and took it up. We went up to do San Matthew Blue Crab. Uh, that was fun. Uh, but another thing I should say is a friend of mine came over here uh, six months after I was, and his name was Isaac Lequin, and he started fishing for the first time on a different boat, but later on he started fishing with us. So our two, us two, we stayed together fishing until he, and eventually moved back to Norway. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I was on the Rainier then for a year and a half, and then later on Harold got a job 
with a guy down at Tacoma, an older gentleman, I mean wealthy guy that had made it good in real estate and he kind of had a crab fishing boat as a hobby in a way. <laughs> and uh, that boat, that time, was called the Tempo Sea. I was on that boat probably for a little over a year and uh, we fished around. I mean, the, the blue crab, king crab, opelio, and bear dye. And uh, with that boat, we used to deliver, with Rainier too, there was an old cannery in Akadan called Deep Sea, which was <laughs> kind of a little muckly crew in the day, you know. But one time I remember at the time on the, the Temple Sea, Harold got pissed at Deep Sea and we went to Trident and delivered once. And that, that was, they had just built the shore plant that time, so. There in Akatan? Yeah, in Akatan. Mm -hmm. There was no Pollock plant, nothing. It was just a crab plant in those days, mm -hmm. so. But I, I fished there as engineer. It wasn't too long after, in 1990, 88 is the first year I went up on the Rainier. So in 1990, in April, I'd been around on Harold all of a sudden say, oh, well, uh, I'm gonna go home, so you're gonna have the boat. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I said, okay, you can, I'll let you pull 40 pot string here and then uh, we'll go to uh, St. Paul and I'm going to fly home. But you had spent some time in the wheelhouse prior I, to that, right? I'd done I mean, my watches and stuff, but they never let me drive the boat and dock it or something, you know, like mm -hmm. that much, you know. Well, I knew how to drive boats, but I wasn't, now how, I how wasn't big used was to driving, I was a 110 footer. Okay. But that was also a bender built boat. And then it wasn't long after that, then Harold got a hold of a different boat called it. Constance for. Well, wait a minute. I want to. Yeah. We're jumping too far ahead. You just got the boat. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I want to hear about that first experience because that was your first yeah, time. It was. But it was also happens to be as it was in those days. Uh, Opelio fishing lasted from January until almost June. Yeah, you're grinding. Yeah. yeah. And then they had an eastern quota and they had a western quota. So when they shut down the eastern quota, a lot of times the ice would be down. And you just had a tiny little triangle to fish until the ice started receding. You know, and it was like hundred boats in there, so mm -hmm. much gear, and there was scratch fishing and mm -hmm. fished there probably for one trip. And then the ice, we took a chance. The ice started going, and we went up north and we started actually getting some good crabs. So we did. Uh, I think I did uh, three trips on that boat that year. During those days, then we then we had gotten Trident as our market, and they. I had floaters up at San Matthew that bought Opelio back in those days. And uh, I remember doing one trip up there, first time on the north side. That time, <laughs> they, there had been a big freighter that had drifted on land there the fall before, called the Milos Reefers, a Greek freighter. And uh, that boat was still intact, and most of the stuff on board was still there. <laughs> That's probably one of the most interesting stories. I've ever done in Alaska. We we What's had a, we had a skiff on board, so we could actually go over there and get on board and look at it. It had been there for how long? Since October, the year before. This is probably in April. So, but you know, that, it was iced over most of the winter, you know, so nobody oh, can get to it. I hear a good story coming here, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we went on board and got a lot of stuff out of that boat. I mean, there was in those days. Uh, it was people could have a beer on the boat in those days and at that time we had been at sea for many months and didn't have any and then you came on board that boat suddenly we saw 80 cases of beer sitting there at us oh 
Party time. <laughs> yeah, so we had a little fun for a couple days. Mm-hmm. Went back fishing, and uh, you know, uh, we, I think in May the season was over, and then we were told by the ca- the owner of the boat we're going to bring it home to uh, to work on it. So we boarding that vessel wouldn't have been piracy; it'd have been salvage, right? Because it, it was it was abandoned. <laughs> it was abandoned ship. It was open. Access. I can't imagine how that had to be yeah. kind of awesome. Actually, we're, we're, not too many places in the world can you do that. A right. boat's been sitting there six months untouched. Yeah, it was somebody had been on board. It was some, some vandalism had happened. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but most of the stuff was still there. Okay, so then you uh, came back home. Came back home, with the boat, and that time we were told, okay, the boat, uh, boat's been sold. We're gonna ha- get another boat. So that's when they had bought a boat called the uh, Constance. And we started working on that boat, and then they renamed that boat the Tempo C, which was the boat I was on. Right. Yeah. You still with Harold? Still with Harold. You, were you back captaining, and you were back engineering? Then I became the relief captain. So okay. I was engineer, relief. So when I was in, when he was running the boat, I was engineer, and then when he went home, I ran the boat. And somebody else was engineering, or you could follow, keep an eye on him, anyhow. Mm-hmm. So worked on that boat and got some good ship yard experience with that boat because that boat two years later or it was a year later we did a major we cut the boat in two and stretched it 30 feet sponsored it well we didn't sponsor oh, no, it you we stretched it okay and uh repowered and did a lot of stuff to it so pretty invaluable shipyard experience i guess you could yeah. say so and uh stayed with that boat had some pretty good crab seasons with it especially opelio we had able to do pretty good size. We can get 300,000 pounds on board after that compared to, well, not quite 300, but before we had like 160. So so at that time, what year was this when you when you stretched that boat? In 92. So what, what, what were most boats holding at that time? There were some boats. I mean, an average boat was probably 120 to 180. So you guys were... Yeah, but they also had these big, had come in the last years before these so-called mud boats. That was oil supply vessel boats, they, which packed a lot more. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them were catcher processors. Yeah. I heard you had a, like a really outstanding year one year too. Yeah, we had uh, a million pounds of helio in, well, what are we doing in? A little over four weeks. Wow, <laughs> wow. And typically, you, you, three to four days to fill up. It was so much crab, like eight, nine hundred a pot. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was west of Pribilofs in those days. and. I, I'm already forgetting the name of the, this vessel now. The Con, Con, Constance. It was just Constance. that was the boat when we bought it. And then it became again the Temple Sea. Yeah. Okay. And how long were you on there? I stayed on that boat until I retired fishing. Okay. Yeah. So I stayed with it, and then uh, fished relief here, engineer there, and then two, 1995 came along. That's when uh, Harold decided, okay, I'm gonna retire. So then I got the boat full time. Before, before we move off Harold real quick, because he passed seven years ago, you said. Yeah, yeah. You got a good memory of him? Yeah. He, he learned us. He taught us a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. But he was also an old-timer Norwegian, so he, his way of doing things then and our way of doing things today were quite different. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, he'd been around there probably, I mean, he was a, been around sea his whole life. He started when he was probably 15 as a merchant marine in Norway and came to Alaska and became a fisherman. Was he cranky or? Oh, he could be a little cranky every once in a while. 
<laughs> but he knew the Norwegian community, which was good for me, you mm -hmm. know, because there was a lot of people in that community here. Like, plus he was from Karma, which were where most of the crab fishermen from Norway was from. Been hearing that a lot, actually. That it seems Karma, like Karma yeah. was a lot, a lot of people. Because a lot, I mean, there was also some from further north, like around Olesund, but those people did crab too, but they had more experience with trawl, trawling or, and that kind of fishery. So, mm -hmm. so, but you know, they, they did both. So you got the boat in 95? Mm-hmm. And I worked on that boat uh, as captain until 2002. That's when Bob Oldright, the owner, was getting old and sick and he felt like selling the boat. So that boat, I, I had a chance to buy it. I got a, actually a pretty good deal. But I, at the time, I couldn't quite raise enough money, and I know it's one of those could have, should have, yeah. could have, you know. It's like I probably could have gotten a partner or somebody, but you know, I also felt since I was the one on the boat, I was be the one doing most of the work, and somebody else would reap the rewards from it, you know. So, so from 21 to so let's see, you came back over. Am I hearing 15 years here then, all in all? Yeah, from Basically from 1988 to 2002, and that's also the same year the crab fishing kind of got rationalized. Because I was also very lucky, I guess you can say at the time, I was there during all the qualifying years during when the rationalization went through. So I was able to get a benefit out of that as a captain's quota, which was 3% of the quota what the boat had. And, and you had been running it during that I've been running time. it during those years that can, was qualifying. Can you, can you explain that a little bit? Because um, we've had a couple people talk about the rationalization and their quota, but yeah. no one's really pinned down how well, the that way, did the way it for was, you. It's uh, like they had so many years participation, but you also needed recent participation. You couldn't have like two years in, in let's say, in, uh, in the early days, because they needed a couple years recent participation, which the cutoff was... 2001 for Opelia, but I think 2002 for King Crab. I had all my time from 95 to 2002, yeah. so fit in right in that thing. And that's uh, when uh, that thing started going down. And they, they still didn't rationalize it fully until, uh, was it 2005 the first? 2005, I think, was the first season. They that, uh, that captain's quota, right? Yeah. That was assigned to the captain of that boat. Correct? Yeah, because the, the theory was, because the trawl fishing had gotten rationalized earlier, that, you know, why should the captain is the one that made this quota for the boat, and why shouldn't he... He chose the spots. He, why shouldn't he get a little piece of the pie? And, you know, the, they did that that time. And uh, So even know, if you walked away from the boat, you had your quota, period. You had the quota. But, the, you know, the thing was, you, you were supposed to be pressing on the boat to use that quota. Right. But that they relaxed that later. In those years, yeah. did you, can you tell us about your most scariest experience in it? And I don't want to talk about terrifying, but just the time when you, when you yourself was just the most uncomfortable that something was wrong. Well, I'm going to say probably on the rain air. One time on the rain air, we went out west out to Adak to try king crab fishing out there one time. And those passes out there are when you get the tide rips, mm -hmm. pretty bad, you know, and they didn't feel that comfortable being out there. But the, the boat I was on later, the Tempo Sea, was a good sea boat, I felt like. I mean, one time I remember 
we we were drifting uh, and you know somebody was sitting on watch and I came up in the morning and it was like 40 50 foot seas and the boat was drifting still pretty good you know and that that time within a couple hours seven boats had windows knocked in knocked in that time that was probably in the 2003 4 no no in 1993 or something mm -hmm. no but other than that, I felt safe on the Temple Sea. It was a good sea boat, and we we at least tried to play it safe when we fished, you know. So mm -hmm. I had a I felt I had a pretty experienced, good crew. We didn't we had a pretty tight knit group we had together. So how about some fun times? I mean, other than finding that boat up on the the uh, beach with eighty cases of beer, yeah, <laughs> was uh, I mean because that had to be a fun time. Fun times in Alaska or other on, on on the boats, you know, or in Alaska. Yeah, I mean, fine. I mean, it, was, it was fun always in the days prior to King Crab, you know. Back in those, it was like 240 boats got ready at the same time, and when everybody came in to find out what everybody did, and you know who was the Highlander this year, who did bad, and they're all in the you know, in the elbow room. Elbow room or back in in Akaten, you had the the Roadhouse in those days. <laughs> I think it's still around, but uh, no, it was always fun before and after, especially during King Crab. That's when some people made good money and some didn't, and mm -hmm. it was, it was a derby style fishery. So a lot of times you only had a, less than a week to fish, and if you didn't get them on the first try, if you didn't get them on the second try, then you pretty much lost out. Especially right before that rationalization, you're really trying to, you kind of knew it was yeah. coming. Well, not really until. It came around, but you know, in the you know, you didn't know about it the first years when that thing was going. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but uh, we came out okay. Our boat, we had, we were probably, I don't know, in the two thirds tier or so in terms of quota. So it wasn't too bad. Where's the Temple Sea now? It's still called Temple Sea. Um, well, when the old man Bob sold the boat, when I couldn't buy it, then. Uh, the Burns Brothers bought it, or Blue Illusion, or what, what they're called, uh, uh, the, the Longline Company, Blue Pacific, or, well, anyway, they bought it, and I fished with them for a year and a half, I think, and then I decided, okay, it's enough, I think I'm going to give it up, mm -hmm. and that's when I stopped fishing, mm -hmm. and uh, started working land job. Yeah. Which is a port engineer. Then I started with Trident, a sport engineer, and uh, you know, uh, worked there and still do. And uh, and that's. Uh, but I also, after I came on board with Trident, I went up two more times to fish a trawler for crab, for t the trawler quota. So the Gladiator I fished with. So that was an interesting experience um, to run a big trawler for crab. You know. So how, how does that work, trawling for crab? No, you you have a block. It, you well, fish, same, you fish it exact same thing. Fish it the same way, but you just have to remove some gear and equipment to do it to clear up your deck. Mm -hmm. So, and we we did okay. So then got to know. And then 2005 was the 2004 was my last year fishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was that was it. Then got any good sto stories you want to share? Well, I probably have some good memories about some of the. Old-timer Norwegians I met during the years, Corey Ness and Tor Ferkingstad, you know. Uh, let's go there. I mean, let's hear it. Well, I mean, they were 
they had a lot of experience and they had a lot of stories and they were respected and it was nice to see them and talk to them and so um, and you know some of them you still see around today but some have started the some of the older ones have started disappearing and so I think what we're doing here it's good the story to be told so somebody can hear it yeah so let's hear one about Corey well I just met him because he he knew Harold real well Myrold my no Harold uh, not oh. Myrold but uh, Harold uh, Manis and I remember one time, uh, Corey Ness's boat, the boat was called the uh, Royal Viking. Him and uh, him and the captain on that boat, his name was Jonas Jakobsen, he, he's gone today. We were up to fishing in the ice and it was so calm up there that we tied two boats together in the ice. And just hung out together half a day, two crews, sailing on day. It was a sunny, nice day out there. And, and uh, that was Corey Ness's boat. And other people that I fished with those days, you know, Sig Hansen was one I fished with. Uh, he became a captain the same time I did in 1990, 91. So, you know, I kind of always measured myself against him, or maybe he did that to me, or, you know, we talked, fishing, and, and you know, we felt we could trust each other a little bit, but not always. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Isn't that how it works? Well, yeah. Back in those days, uh, you know, you had, you had a little secret you had to follow. Yeah, again, the whole premise behind this podcast is, like you, like you said, trying to capture some of these stories. Yeah. What else do you have to share? Let's remember somebody else who's gone. Well, Harold, uh, Myrold is one guy I'm going to always have good memories of, uh, especially in the last five years he was living. I knew Harold from before, but after he... You know, when he was in his latter years, I started doing things with Harold. We we did things here in Seattle. We went. He was always interested in soccer. We went to soccer games, and I took care of the boat. He ran the Royal Viking, and he also ran the Billiken for Trident uh, at the days. And he was a good old gentleman fisherman, tough. But he his also name was Big Harold. So he was big. He's, he was a big man. Oh, he was a nice man. So uh, miss him all the time. Yeah, so him and you know, you know somebody else, Leif Norber was one guy. We, he was a good friend with Harold. He owned the Scandies Rose. He was a one of the highliners up there. And, yeah. And Magni Ness, we know who was. And uh, Magni's still around though. He's I just still saw around. him on Saturday. He's still around. And and some of the other Norwegians was the Johannessons. You know, John Johannesson. He he had uh, several trawlers and. Was that Picker? Picken was his nickname. Picken. Yeah. Yeah. Got to know his sons, uh, you know, Lloyd and Lloyd and Norman Johannesson. Mm -hmm. So we used to do things together. One of the early people we met when I came over. Another guy I fished with quite a bit was uh, Owen Klinge, who now runs the Arctic Sea, the biggest boat up there, with the biggest quota. So we used to fish together. Well, how back how big is the boat? How big is the quota for that boat? Yeah. Wow, I think. They have 10% of the, of the Opelio quota, that company alone, or the coastal villages. <laughs> How big's the boat? Oh, it's uh, it's a Marco boat, but that was one of the last ones. Yeah, this was back in, was it 95, where they put pot limits on boats. And they built that boat two years, or sponsored it and lengthened it so you can have 400 pots on oh. it. And they did it two years before... Um, 
before the rationalization. Before that thing, so that was kind of what didn't work out too well. But his brother used to run the boat at the time, Jorn uh, Kvinga, and he was also one of the Highlanders back in the days. And they were always known that company. They were owned by a Danish person at the time. You know, before this, they were always known for doing it. You know, top notch gear and equipment, everything. They always did well. So, I, I think everybody looked up to those boats a little bit in those days. Well, you got uh, you got several classes up in Alaska that really impacted our industry, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, from where I sit, I always hear about the Norwegians, how strict they were, how good their boats were operated. The Danish were meticulous at yeah. everything. And the Filipinos actually had a, a strong, strong presence as well early on. And, yeah. and still a minority. Yeah. A minority, no, just fishing in general mm -hmm. in Alaska. And, uh, and are still very impactful today. So it's like you have many uh, cultures or generations facing they, into this they industry. They do. They, I mean, they had the, the Russians, they had the, especially in Bristol Bay, Russians, Italians. They had the Norwegians. They had this. They had, they had groups. Well, well, remember, Alaska used to be Russia, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, so. yeah. But back in the days when I started, the big, the big company up there fishing was actually Arctic Alaska. They had the most boats. Mm -hmm. you know, Trident at the time, they had uh, they had Billiken, Bountiful, Royal Viking was the crab boats, and then they had, in the early days when I started, I think they only had two or three trawlers, four maybe, but that's after that is when they started really, really growing. Mm -hmm. So Arctic Alaska was the biggest company, I think, in uh, during the big days, yeah. Did you ever, ever have to assist at a rescue at sea? Uh, I remember one time, we we didn't we were just there for support. It was about the American Star, which another friend of mine used to fish on uh, Harley or Steve Davidson. Oh, we've had he, Harley he, on here. Yeah, he was on there, but I don't know if he was on there that time. But his captain at the time, he he drifted on land up between the Pribilofs there on Whale. I think what, what was it called? Walrus Island. <laughs> they drifted up there and they had to abandon the ship, and then. Uh, and uh, I mean, I heard about, you know, that time when seven boats knocked out the windows. There was a couple of fires. I mean, we never ended up assisting at sea with any rescue at the time when I was mm -hmm. fishing. But I mean, I heard about plenty of them. And uh, but uh, there was always something, especially, you know, during the king crab years when people had big pots loads on there. You know, I remember one year when the Northwest Mariner sank, it tipped over. And uh, there was one time we were leaving all, was a, somebody got a fire in the boat and they were able to put it out. And So there was always something, always something going on. Always something going on, something you're trying to dodge. Mm -hmm. And uh, th there was a couple of times I almost got hurt too, you know, I remember one time a pot started tipping over and I was lucky enough to be able to lean down and get under it and it rested on my shoulder when it landed on the railing. So if it wouldn't, wouldn't land on that railing, it would have probably crushed me down. You know? So it kind of impacted the railing and your shoulder at the same time? Yeah, so I was lucky on that one. And then I, one year, i always going to remember up there was 2005. No, 1995 was when it was the year we got the highest price ever for Pelio. Remember, I think we got 260 a pound. But it was also the coldest winter I think I ever had up there. We, you would go out there in the morning, had to chop ice to get 
things ready. You fished for a while, and then midday you had to chop ice again, and then by the end of the day you had to chop ice before you went to bed. It was like that was '95, so yeah. you were still on deck. I was time? on deck, and I was also run. That's when I was releasing, but I was on deck at that time. So that that was super cold. But then back in those days, I remember Leif Norbert on their Scandinavian road came in with three hundred thousand pounds at that time, two sixty a pound, almost a million dollars. Oh my lord! And that was in those days. That was a big, big paycheck. <laughs> Did, didn't you have a three million? Uh, king crab season at one point? Well, uh, I've been told my dad back in the days when he fished in Alaska in the 60s, fished on a boat called the Viking, which is still around. Trident used to own it, but they sold it. Somebody still operates it as a tender now, but they had... I think John Franklin does. Uh, he he doesn't own uh, maybe, it, okay. but he, I think he... he, he He's the fleet manager, fleet manager of Southeast Alaska. Okay. He, see, he tells it where to go and stuff. It's still up there running around. It, it is. And they had three million pounds of king crow on that boat in the 60s on one year. Can you imagine? And that's, big, when, that's another guy that really struck up big in Alaska. It was uh, uh, a guy called Sam Yelly. Was, he was actually from Ålesund area, Norway. He, he, he's, he was the founding member of Glacier Fish. And he was early... In the early 50s, the first crab boat up there, I think, was called the Deep Sea. They trawled for crab in those days. They dragged for it. <laughs> before, just, they used, yeah, like a, before they used... Kind of like scallops? Yeah. Just almost, a little yeah. net on the back, kind of? 1954, I think, it was the first year they went fishing. And that was on the Deep Sea. That's another boat that burnt and sank down here a few years ago. So, yeah, no, there's a lot of stories, you know, and then... You know, my dad in 1975 was his last year. Then fishing went on really, really good until 1981, I think, or 82, was when the king crab poof disappeared, mm-hmm. and that's when a lot of people had big, big problems. A lot of money went out there to oh, build those A lot those of people went bankrupt because they back in those days they had uh, was like 17% interest on the loans on the boat. <laughs> you know, that, try that today. You know, so. No, but uh, overall, a lot of good memories, uh, a lot of history, and I'm say I'm uh, glad I got to be part of it. Um, well, and you've uh, you married a Norwegian. Yeah, I did that, which also had a dad that fished his whole life, and she she now sells the product, the fish, not the crab, but she sells Pollock for Trident. So yeah, mm-hmm. she's been here for. Well, 18 years now. You, you see your boys going fishing? Uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, I wouldn't mind sending them up there just to get a little dirt under their fingers and say, hey, I've done it. I've been there. You know, uh, I think it looks good on anybody's resume saying you've been fishing, you've been on the boat, you, you know how to work. It well, tells you a little bit about the person. If it's on your resume, they, you, you have to have known how to work, right? I mean, well, if you didn't you wouldn't have the job and at least not very long so yeah it'd be like a two-week blip <laughs> yeah. well I uh, must say I had experience with hiring a f- few people off the beach sometimes and it was a different standard and some people you hired some could make it and some had no clue it was so speak- <laughs> speaking of that if uh, not not talking about your kids because your kids are gonna have an absolute easy way into the industry if they want to because mm-hmm. Your name will get them their, their first job. Uh, someone listening today that has no contacts, 
what do you suggest if, if this is something you want to try? Well, it's a little different today. Back in the days, people could fly to Alaska and walk the docks and get hired. It's a little hard to do that today because not so many people get hired off the docks. Uh, at least none of the bigger companies do it because the screening you have to go through, the drug test, the this and the that. Smaller companies might still hire you, but it's it's you, you more need to apply to get the job than you did in those days. And uh, but there's uh, we, we see new young people coming into the industry, and some seem to do well. I think, mm -hmm. and it's good to see because it's uh, it still pays well, and you know. It's a good way for people to save up a little money if they're gonna ever buy a house. It's pretty hard to save up money being home. It's nice getting that big check. <laughs> it is. In fact, you said uh, earlier when you uh, got that first boat, that trawler, right? Or that long line, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, you toured the United States. First thing I did, I came home, I bought <coughs> a car, and I had two friends come over and we drove to California and all the way to Mexican what was border. The, what was the car? It was a Cadillac. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> everybody, everybody has that first big spend. Yeah, normally, it was fun. It was everybody fun. has that first big spend. Yeah. So we're uh, we're running close out of time here, John. But I wanted to uh, uh, take a moment. We've been doing this deal where folks write in, you know, mm -hmm. and you give comments about the show and and how it's going. Which, by the way, I appreciate everyone's feedback. Today's though is going to be from Mark Horner. Uh, Mark, is, there's been some contact here back and forth, and uh, some of myself and some with Jack Mullen, who you guys heard on episode one and episode three. Mm -hmm. um, I want to read it real quick, and then I'll ask for some feedback from you, John. But uh, this, this was actually directed to uh, Jack from Mark. It said, uh, well, hey, Jack, I'll let, you guys, uh, wait, I'll let you guys get back to your evening, and thanks for sharing your story with Mark, because it's, great, it's a great story, man. The whole surfing thing and your whole philosophy on life you have many sayings you have a saying where you say most people have a have a lot of time and a little money or a lot of money and little time from that perspective i really respect how you've been able to carve out a life where you make a lot of money in a certain months in the year and then have time to go and do the things that you enjoy uh mark you can you can also check out mark's uh, webpage at uh, beyond 90 seconds really really cool insight there but um, John, any feedback on people writing in and questioning questions? I mean, people that want to get into this industry. Uh, I mean, uh, one thing I should have said is also. I mean, one, one op good opportunity is is to come into the boat when they're in the yard period. That's the good time to show yourself and what you're made of, because people will know right away whether you have the the drive and the interest that you need. That's that's actually really good advice because a lot yeah. of guys don't want to work shipyard, well, but that's I mean, where you kind of really earn uh, or secure your spot. That was the way in, in in many times back in the days. People would go for free the first trip in the King, you, big king crab. Do you remember when you'd you'd find a guy and they'd have to repair all the nets? I mean, we're talking on the dock still. Repair all the nets, not a nickel, and just oh, work was, until the captain either thought you could go or not go. It was very common back in the early early king crab days when they made the big money back in those mm -hmm. days people it was like hundred dollars a day and people you know you went out for a 10-day trip some people made fifty thousand and you made a thousand 
that's a tough pill. That's yeah. a tough pill. Well, that's like it was an incentive to get with the program real quick. Right. To, yeah. You know, the better you got, the sooner you got there. So. Before we close out, John, do you have anything else to say? I'm going to say that uh, the ocean and the boats and the sea has given me uh, a lot of rewards and uh, it's been a career worth pursuing for me. It's taken care of me, I've got a good living, all that, and it's still possible. It really is still possible. Yeah. It really is. And I think that's a good way to end it. I think so too. All right, guys, uh, any questions for John or any captains we've had on previously, uh, just send those in to Mark at galleystories.net. I do encourage you to follow us on iTunes or uh, Facebook or whatever social media site you like. I, I do, we do appreciate all the support you've given us. And with that, guys, we'll end it here, and we will see you next time.